Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our True Crime Podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will, together <laughs> will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. episode 23. Hello listeners, we're so happy that you're here. We are happy to be back and we're happy to introduce you to Evil Pudding. We had our dessert at the beginning of the episode. Courtney does amazing research. She's a great storyteller. Patrick is always trying to be the tough guy, but the stories that she tells are so horrific that anybody would be shocked by them. And by the end of the episode, you're just amused at conversations that they've had about the case they're discussing. So for a quality podcast and lovable hosts, go listen to Evil Pudding. I'm Bailey. And I'm Beth. And we'll go ahead and get started. We have no updates. So. This is a typical week. Bailey's got the bad thing and I am the angel and I will bring you back up with a good thing. I really hope so because I was crying when you came to tell me it was time to record. So oh, here we go with this shit again. <laughs> Hopefully I'm crying out. I think I got it out of my system. Oh, so. you're killing me. You're killing me, Smalls. Okay, so I'm going to take you to, have you heard of the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans? I don't know if I have or not. Okay. The upstairs lounge, I'm first going to tell you about a church behind this, okay? I haven't been there either. Have not been here. (laughs) But this, I will say this, if I had to join any kind of congregation, this would be the one I'd go for. Okay. They're a pretty awesome church. The church is called the Metropolitan Community Church, which was established in 1968 in Los Angeles, California. Okay. Okay. They have a heavy focus on human rights and are generally very accepting people. Good. So I have a quote from their website, which is mccchurch.org, and it says, MCC has been at the vanguard of civil and human rights movements by addressing issues of race, gender, sexual orientation, economics, climate change, aging, and global human rights. MCC was the first to perform same-gender marriages and has been on the forefront of the struggle towards marriage equality in the U.S. and other countries worldwide. Wow, that's pretty forward-thinking of them. In the late 60s? Yeah. 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 Flash forward to 1970 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Most gay people at this time were kept in the closet and had to find other ways to socialize with other people Mm like-minded. So they would have to go, think of like the Stonewall Inn. It was a similar kind of atmosphere where they would have these secret out-of-sight, out-of-mind parties type of things. Right. In order to be their true selves. The wealthy LGBTQ community in New Orleans had a few bars on Bourbon Street, which catered towards them, and it was, again, out of sight, out of mind. People just pretended they didn't know what was going on in there. Okay. However... Was it they pretended, or they really didn't know what was going on? I think a lot of them didn't know, and if they did know, they'd just be like, I didn't see it, walk away, whatever. So that was for the wealthy members of the community. Okay. However, that left a large majority of the community who were blue-collar people and couldn't afford to get into these bars. They couldn't afford to go to these places. So they had a huge outcry of people saying, we want a 
gay club that we can go to and just hang out and relax. Right, because we want to be able to... We're humans too. ...be who we are as well. <laughs> yeah, and feel safe. On October 31st, 1970, a place called the Upstairs Lounge opened in a less affluent part of the French Quarter in New Orleans, catering towards the blue-collar members of the LGBTQ plus community. Okay. The Upstairs Lounge took place in a three-story building on Iberville Street, and it was on the second floor where this lounge would be because the bottom floor was all these shops and stuff like that that you would just pass on the street and not know what was upstairs. And it was hidden, but there was a secret staircase from the street level that would lead up to the second floor. Okay. And so, there was just the one? Yeah, it had one set of stairs up and that's it. Okay. So Already the architect in me doesn't like I know. This. I already knew that you would know where this was going the second I said there was only one exit. Oh, <laughs> okay, I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. But go forward. It was not only a bar where these members of the community could go. It was also a social club. They had a lot of... They had a cabaret stage there, so they could host all kinds of theater productions, things like that. Oh, that's cool. They had live piano music throughout the week. They frequently hosted parties and celebrations, so if somebody got promoted, they would all celebrate and congregate there to Mm -hmm. celebrate together. And the local MCC church realized that this is where a lot of their members were going on their time off, so they would start hosting their events here and say, hey, you're already there, let's just host the church event there, where people who otherwise grew up religious and are now coming to terms with the fact that they're gay might have finally a church that actually relates to them. Right, and and embraces them. Right. So this became a really frequent thing, is that the MCC would host all their events there, and then afterwards they'd have an after party and just shoot the shit and relax together. Yeah. June 24th, 1973, the MCC were hosting one of their usual after-church events, and they had 10-cent beers and free food for everybody that attended from, like, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock or something like that. It's an extravaganza. Yeah, so everybody, even the people that weren't members of the church, were coming to this and meeting other people like them at okay. this event. Although, Round, with the inclusivity of this church, it's hard to say they're going to be like them. They could be anybody. It's they literally could be and anybody. And that's the beauty of it, is they were very mm-hmm. accepting whether you were religious or not. They just... Right. They believed in love and everybody just getting along and doing what's best for humanity. And and fellowship. Exactly. So at the time, there were about 125 people of the community in the second floor. Around 8 o'clock, only about 60 people remained. Because like I said, they stopped the cut off the beer, free beer or whatever at 7 o'clock. And a lot of people stayed, finished their beer, and then left by Mm 8 o'clock. Okay. Around 7.53 p.m., unbeknownst to the crowd upstairs... Someone had poured a 7-ounce can of Ronsonol onto the wooden stairs, which is a lighter fluid. Okay. And like I said, there's only one set of stairs up, and then they had flicked the match, oh, and the blaze had started. Oh. Someone from the front entrance of the bar, which was on the main street there, had buzzed in. Because it's a very exclusive, we don't let people in that are going to get us arrested for... Right. being gay and like at the time you could get arrested for dancing with somebody of the same sex so they were just very limited who they could let up into that space right they had to have security right so they had a buzzer system where they would buzz you in and then somebody from the bar who worked there or frequented there a lot would go down and check who it was and let you in okay somebody at about eight o'clock so 753 they had poured the gasoline or whatever And then at 8 o'clock, somebody had buzzed from downstairs at the street level, and Buddy Rasmussen, which is the bartender that night, 
asked a patron to go down and investigate who was buzzing in, and as the patron opened the door to the wooden staircase below, the flames got contact with all the oxygen oh, from the room and exploded immediately. Over. Yeah. Oh my god. The small spire that had been started in the staircase immediately engulfed the carpet, the wallpaper, the ceiling tiles, everything just falling down around them. Immediate flames. Oh. So Buddy Rasmussen, the bartender and also an Air Force veteran, knowing that there was another exit in the back that the patrons didn't know about, began just, he jumped over the bar and immediately started gathering people and saying, follow me, follow me. The lights are flickering now. Nobody has any vision what's going on. So he starts corralling people as many as he can to the back exit. Okay. Now keep in mind, the fire exit that we're talking about is not an exit down to the floor. It's up to the roof. But his idea is that they're now on the roof, but the buildings were close enough. They can now jump to the other roof and get down to safety. So he got about 40 people up on to the roof and then across safely. And so, how many people had been there? Like 85 or something? There were about 60 okay. at the time. The okay. head count, just a general head count would so say. So he got two-thirds of the people. So most of the people he got out. However, a lot of them started running back inside because their partner was still inside. Right. Or so, they're good friends. or Right. And it's just awful. Right. The main area of the lounge still had about half of the occupants, give or take, unable to either get to the set of stairs that were now on fire and the fire exit was now blocked off because the carpet and stuff around it was completely burning and they probably didn't even know it was there, to be honest. So they decided to turn to the large set of windows on the front of the building, which are floor-to-ceiling windows. They started breaking the windows and unfortunately, after they got through, the smoke had been so bad, they finally realized the glass is no longer there, but they have these floor-to-ceiling iron bars on the outside with only about 14 inches in between them. Right. So some of the smaller people could get through and jump the two stories down to the street, but a lot of them were not able to get through this. Wow. And they were saying a lot of the people jumping out, the fire spread so freaking fast that most of the people jumping out from the second story were on fire as they landed on the first floor. So it was awful. Reverend Bill Larson, who was the reverend of the church that had been meeting there that night, he was able to remove a window AC unit, and in that small area beneath the bars, he could push that out and then was helping people get through that. So a lot of people got out because of him until, and this is really awful, like this is probably the most gruesome I'm going to get, but until the upper pane of glass began to melt and just completely smashed onto him, and he had, this is like one of those things that I just feel like I have to mention because if you search pictures of this event, they literally left him dead there for like hours and hours. And that's one of the pictures that was all over the newspaper and everything. But the pane of glass fell and wedged him into the windowsill and he burned to death as he's half in, half out of the building. Oh, God damn. That's so freaking brutal. That's horrible. Yeah. So just a warning, if you do search this, you probably will find that photo. It's like uh. within the first three photos that came up. That was Reverend Bill Larson. His assistant pastor, George Mitchell, had escaped when the bartender got him up to the roof and he was down. However, his partner, they said that he considered him his husband because they had a civil ceremony a couple years prior. So I'm going to say his husband was still inside, and even though it wasn't legal at the time. So George Mitchell had escaped when the bartender had led him to the roof and then back down to safety. However, he later returned into the building because his husband, Louis Horsace Brossard, was still inside of the building. 
But they also fell victim, a lot of people said they fell victim to the smoke inhalation, which at least, it's still awful, don't get me wrong, but a little bit of... Yeah, I have to believe if I had to, if I had to choose, mm-hmm. I would pick smoke inhalation over burning to death. Seriously, but yeah, so they oh. both succumbed to the fire and were actually found holding each other. Aww. Remember, this whole thing had started at 7.53 p.m. when the initial match had been thrown into the stairwell, right? Yes. By 8.12 p.m., the blaze had been put out. So it was only less than 20 minutes that this burned. Yeah. Well, yeah, but in an old building that's got... Yeah, this building was built, I forgot to mention that, in 1848. Yeah, and I'm sure that the interior of it was all built of wood framing, and Mm -hmm. it was very, very old wood framing, so it was super dry. And fire safety wasn't really a thing. No, I could list about five code violations if it were built now so you know back then the code wasn't what it is now and in those older buildings a lot of the time even if it was now there are a lot of things that they would let them get away with just because it's an old historical building Mm -hmm. so and they probably didn't tell the community how many people were in there at any given time they probably weren't regulated to have up to 200 people in this tiny little bar area but yeah, and the city may not have even known it was being used that way. Yeah, they could have just thought it was like office buildings or something. Right, and so. that would have different egress requirements too. So. so the fire had burned less than 20 minutes. However, a total of 28 people died at the scene and oh. four others died later from their injuries, oh, either man. on the way to the hospital or in the hospital. Oh, all from one from asshole a- arsonist. Yes. I'm going to kind of talk to you about that. We're not entirely sure. It wasn't really investigated that heavily. Of course not. Because the community were very apathetic towards it. They didn't really care. It didn't make a difference in their lives as they saw it. So Right. If it doesn't affect me, then it's not important. So the only suspect ever named was a frequenter of the bar named Roger Dale Nunez. He was a gay man. And he had, in 1970, been diagnosed and hospitalized with a schizophrenic type of psychological disorder. And they listed it as some kind of conversion therapy cause. And I'm like, well, yeah, anybody would lose their shit after going to conversion therapy. Yeah, and it was pretty brutal stuff back then. It wasn't talk therapy. Yeah, it wasn't talk therapy. It was like, let's electrocute him until he stops breathing, and then maybe he'll be straight. Yeah. Oh, my God. So he had been kicked out of the bar earlier the night of the 24th, which I don't know if you noticed, June 24th is when it occurred. That's actually when this episode is coming out. Oh my god. It just so happens it's going to be on the 49th anniversary of this event. Holy crap. That's amazing. But yeah, he had been kicked out the, earlier in the evening on June 24th for starting a brawl with another customer. And a friend of his later stated that he had admitted to spraying the lighter fluid at the bottom of the steps and then flicking the match, not knowing that the tragedy would be as great as it was. What the hell did he, he think was going to He thought he was going to get revenge. Apparently he had been seen talking to the bartender and said something about how when he was getting kicked out, he was going to set the place on fire. And then it actually got set on fire. So that's why everybody's like, well, if he later admitted to it, he probably did it. I'm going to say right if now. He's, if he's the one who admitted spraying the lighter fluid... Yeah, and then, then he flicking the match. Then he did it. So oh he was arrested and then ended up put into psychiatric care after that, but not for very long because he escaped the psychiatric care and the police never even bothered to go try to find him again. Oh However, God. he was only on the run for a little bit because he later completed suicide in November of 1974. Wow. So only a year and some months after. Oh. So, I mean, that does make me believe he probably didn't mean to kill people and he did feel guilty after everything went down but 
That's why his... I think he's probably the person who did it. What was his age? They never said. I didn't. I just wonder how that. old he was because a lot of the people who died in this or who attended were between the ages of twenty-five and forty. I would say. It's just some people when they're younger, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't. It's like they don't have a grasp of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. It's I'm like going object- to do this thing, but I don't think anything's going to really come of it. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. It, any clear thinking person is going to know if you spray lighter fluid on wooden stairs. In the only exit. On the only exit. That, and, and even the other one's not really an exit. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a roof access. That's not an exit. Right. Exit takes you to the ground where you can get help. Yeah. So, so oh my God. he had to know somebody was going to get hurt. That's just not a good enough excuse for me. But I do think that that's a pretty likely scenario. But that's literally the only suspect ever named. Uh, that's what we have to go off of. What an awful thing. God forbid Mm -hmm. that marginalized people should have a place that's theirs Mm -hmm. and that they can go there and just be happy and be themselves and enjoy themselves. There's always got to be one person who comes along and screws it up for everybody. And this was the only place for the poor man who could go and do this. This guy was part of that community. And he was mad because they kicked him out after he started a fight. He knocked somebody out. He did all this to himself. And then You don't get to be the victim because you're the one who caused the fight and got thrown out. Mm. Oh man, that stuff just makes me sick. I know. So this part boils my blood. After the tragedy, the city either completely ignored it or made fun of it and made light of it. Oh god. And it was a common joke to say around town the flaming queens oh. right afterwards which is like not a joke if you're literally making some that's fun of somebody's so, death that's so just so offensive i know oh my this whole thing just makes me feel sick it's to my just stomach heartbroken right just sick to my stomach that's so awful and it's such an awful death that those and then people make were fun of him for it people what the fuck humans like, can be so disgusting so also to bum me out some more. Oh, thanks. I need a little more <laughs> bumming. Many of the victims' families would not come to claim their bodies, and most churches in the area refused to hold any type of memorial or funeral for the victims, which a lot of them were very religious. That's why they were there that night. So to not even honor them. In a- <sighs> you know, I have friends now who are devout mm-hmm. members of their religious congregations. And they're really conflicted by the stance that their various religions have taken against people of different sexual orientations and different gender ideation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the way I've always seen it is if your God is so loving and loves us all for who we are, then who are you to say that these people who died don't deserve the service that they worship the same God you did? And you're still going to say no because they like the same gender. They don't deserve a memorial service. Right. It's just and so hypocritical. I think up until the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. it was not really a widely accepted thing that you were born. Yeah. Yeah this way. Mm-hmm. And I think that now a lot more people accept that and recognize that. Mm-hmm. They're just being who they are as they get older. And and the fact is their churches are teaching them self-loathing. They're yeah, teaching them just, that they're not lovable, that they're not acceptable the way they are. And that's just so heartbreaking. You know, 
However, there was a reverend named Reverend William P. Richardson who held a small service on June 25th, so the next day, and about 80 people attended. Most of the people who came to celebrate their loved one's life had to sneak out through the side exits because the front of the church, they were holding it in, people were angry, they were picketing, they were upset that they were honoring their loved one. Yeah. (sighs) And Richardson was later rebuked, the reverend who held the service for holding the service entirely so they kicked him out of his own freaking church for being what a christian should be i know i just i'm always i i'm speechless because there is no low that's too low yeah humans will find that low and they will call it and they will say i can do better and Mm -hmm. they will go lower in 1998, for the 25th anniversary of the fire, a memorial service hosted by Pastor Dexter Brecht, who is a member of the reconstituted MCC. Okay. So the same church, but they've obviously regrouped, gotten their church back together, and this is the new pastor. Okay. So Dexter Brecht hosted a memorial service that went from the Royal Sinesta Hotel Grand Ballroom, and then they marched the streets, and they ended at the building of the former upstairs lounge. It was a jazz funeral procession where they laid wreaths and other memorial offerings for those that were alive. <laughs> God damn, I looked up to you and saw you sad. No, I'm sad. I wasn't sad. I was <sighs> happy. I was no, it's actually... happy. It's happy. It's good. It's, yeah. I'm happy because I'm sure that the 1998 one... Mm-hmm. Isn't like it would be now. Oh, I have a quote, so hold that thought. I have a quote from the Wikipedia article about this 25th anniversary event that took place. It says, In 1998, the reconstituted MCC of New Orleans held a 25th anniversary service to commemorate the arson and its 32 deaths. This event is significant because, unlike the one it memorialized... The 300 members of the congregation refused to hide their faces and instead insisted on entering and leaving. Through the front doors. Through the church's front doors. Wow. I just love that. But in 1998, that was still an act of... Huge. Huge. It was still a brave thing to do in 1998. I mean, 24 years ago, a Mm -hmm. lot has changed. A lot hasn't, but a lot has. I know, it's just shocking that this kind of shit still goes on. But yes. but I just wanted to mention one of the people who led this mm-hmm. parade, basically. It was like the end of Pride for the month. They led this parade on the 25th anniversary. One of the people who led it was one of the victim's niece, who at the time of the fire, she had been tiny, you know? And his family had never collected his remains. Oh my god. So his family at the time had never collected his remains, and so she memorialized him by coming back. It's awful and so sweet. It is sweet because he finally got to be with someone who loved him, someone in his family who accepted him. Mm-hmm. Good for her. So every year, the MCC pastor who hosted that event, named Dexter Brecht, campaigned to have a permanent memorial placed at the site, and he was finally successful in 2003 when a bronze plaque was placed at the spot of the fire. Up until 2015, three of the men remained as John Doe's because oh nobody had any idea. Like, either their family no didn't live in the area, them. didn't know that they'd been there, or they were just in the closet and nobody could know that that was them. Mm. But in 2015, January 2015, family members found out about the arson attack that took place in New Orleans, and after doing some research of their own, 
were finally able to identify one of the John Doe's as 32-year-old Larry Norman Frost, who had just disappeared at the time. They didn't know that he had been here, but I don't know if they identified him by DNA or if that, right, but... because you don't know the condition of his remains I don't know the, the condition. Time. He could have just died from smoke inhalation and still had a recognizable face. I don't know. Yeah, well, if they weren't from right in that area... Yeah, they couldn't. At the time, I think they knew... Some of the people who attended the bar knew who he was and tried to contact his family, but they couldn't get a hold of anybody, and they weren't from the area, so they just kind of said maybe he wasn't one of the ones who died, but they didn't know. Well, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't like you could just get on the internet and do a search for someone's family. Yeah, exactly. So you can't just go on Facebook and be like, who's their mother? Like, you know? Yeah, you had to pretty much know what you were looking for and then go Mm -hmm. to that phone book. And a lot of their family, they probably only talked about the ones who were close to them, accepted them for who they were. So if they're overseas at the time, not home for six, seven months. Yeah. But yeah, so... So the other two never got identified? So those three, the three that were unidentified, two of them never were identified. However, an anonymous source came forward and donated so that all three of them could be buried at Holt Cemetery in New Orleans. So they had never been buried for 30 years? No, they'd been buried at the time. They had all three been buried from the anonymous donors fund. And I think that, I believe it was July 31st of that year they were buried. So they kept them for a a little bit over a month and Mm -hmm. then buried them finally. In 2013, a documentary about the fire was released called The Upstairs Lounge Fire. And in 2015, another one, which actually has a lot of the people who were there and survived interviewed, which I really want to watch. It's available on Amazon Prime, so if you are a member, it is called Upstairs Inferno. Wow. That one hurt, but I'd I'd never heard of it. And it was until the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016 was the biggest mass casualty of any gay club or social event or anything like that in the United States. Wow. No, I had not heard of that either. But I think that there's, regardless of the death toll, Mm -hmm. Things like this have happened forever. It happens to every marginalized bit of the population. It happens mm-hmm. to black people. It happens to all people of color. It happens yeah. to Asians, especially now. Yeah, especially after the COVID shit. Yeah, and it's happened to, to <sighs> the LGBTQ community forever. Mm-hmm. And things are better than they used to be, but they're still not good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I just thought it was important to spread the word and, you know, this is coming out on the 49th anniversary of this happening, so just take a moment out of your day today and just Yeah, and just remember these people that died such a horrible way just Mm -hmm. for being who they were. For the longest time, got absolutely no respect. I don't want to even say it's a positive because there's nothing positive about this, but at least someone didn't target them because they were LGBTQ. That we know of. We think it was the guy who was from the church, but who knows if they were just pointing fingers, oh, easy target, he got kicked out of the club that night, and then... Okay, I can see your point. They never had any confession from him. They had people that came forward and said, oh yeah, I heard he said this at some party, but... Oh, so someone... It could have been a scapegoat situation. It could have been. Absolutely. Absolutely, I can see that for the police. The way that the police ridiculed it afterwards is just, just absolutely Mm -hmm. disgusting to me. Yeah, those people should rot in freaking hell, and I don't even believe in hell, but they should still rot there. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I hope that you know what they're old and cranky now, and I don't even hope they're dead. I just hope they're old and cranky. All the bigots out there, you are being replaced. 
the generations that are coming are not like you. So all of these bigoted beliefs that you've been holding your whole life, mm-hmm. when you die, they're going with you. Mm-hmm. So my story is not going to be nearly the emotional roller coaster that you just took us on. Okay, good. That was that was rough. That was rough, and it made me mad. So agreed, agreed. So so many things could have changed the outcome of that, and it's just it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. All right, let's talk about Brittany Diggs. So in 2017, Brittany Diggs was a 25-year-old nursing student who was attending college in Birmingham, Alabama. She isn't from Alabama. She grew up in North Carolina. So she didn't really have much of a support network in the area. She knew some people from school. She was working hard. She had a roommate. You know, she was living on a tight budget like most college students are. Mm -hmm. On March the 14th of 2017, Brittany arrived home in her car. She was getting out of it just outside of her apartment when out of nowhere, a man suddenly grabbed her at gunpoint and demanded that she give him money. And she told him, hey, you got the wrong person. I'm a college student. I don't have any money. Seriously? He threatened to kill her as he physically forced her into her own car. So she's getting out, he comes along, forces her back into the driver's seat, and he gets in the passenger seat, Mm -hmm. forces her to drive away. He was angry, he was hostile, he seemed really dangerous. He's waving his gun at her, she's physically overpowered. He told her that if she didn't have any money, then she was gonna help him go get it somewhere else. As he made her drive him around Birmingham, he was shouting at her over and over, you're lying, I know you've got something, give me your money. And she just didn't have any. She just didn't have anything valuable to give to him. Well, any money she has is probably from a bank loan, and that's at the bank. It's not like... It's probably already at the school. Right. Seriously. I just... Okay. So the man made her stop, and he tried to rob a couple that he saw. Well, that failed. And then it made him even madder and even angrier and more hostile. So they drove on a little bit further, and once again, he tried to rob another couple. Again, he didn't get what he wanted, Mm -hmm. so he's really furious. At this point, he's super agitated. Nothing he's trying to do is working. He demanded that she show him inside of her trunk in case she had anything in there that was worth selling, anything that had any value to it at all. When there was nothing in the trunk, he forced Brittany to get in the trunk of her own car. Then he got back in the car, and when he did, he found her wallet. And in her wallet was her bank card, and he demanded the pin from Brittany, who is locked in the trunk. Mm-hmm. So now he's driving around with her in the trunk, stopping at location after location, using her ATM card, trying to withdraw cash from her linked bank accounts. But as she told him, she didn't have much, and he only succeeded in getting about $100 from one of the ATMs. Wow. So he continued stopping. I don't know why he can't look at the bank balance and see that he's not getting more money because there is no more money. Mm -hmm. But he was super enraged that she didn't have anything to give to him. So he pulls into yet another gas station and as he's getting out of the car, he yells at her through the back seats into the trunk. If this doesn't work, I'm going to kill you. And Brittany, at this point, knows it's not going to work because she knows there's no more money in the bank. Well, she's told him this the entire freaking time. What's... Well, the guy was obviously not lucid or not... In the mindset to yeah, he just, rationalize. He just, yeah, he couldn't grasp what she was saying or somehow, you know, it's Einstein's definition of insanity. Yeah, trying the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Brittany is starting to feel really panicky. Of course. You know, the thought in her mind, what she was afraid he was going to do was that he was going to just go drive the car into a river or lake and she was going to drown and that no one would even know she was in the trunk. Mm -hmm. As the man was inside the store trying to get money out of the ATM, the panic in her heart just gave way to brainstorming. She wanted to live. 
Mm-hmm. And so she's sitting there thinking, what can I do to get out of this trunk? And as she considered ways that she might escape, she remembered seeing a video on Facebook about the law that was passed around 2000 that all cars sold in the U.S. are required to have a trunk latch. And she had never even noticed one in her trunk before, but it occurred to her that she might have one. Yeah. Oh. It was pitch black in the trunk. And she was feeling around for it. She wasn't quite sure what she was looking for. But she really needed a source of light. So suddenly she remembered she was a diabetic and she had an insulin pump and she remembered that the display on her insulin pump was an LED pulled it out and lit the little display up and the dim light was just enough she spotted the location of the escape latch Mm -hmm. she also knew it was going to be mere seconds before he returned to the car after which he was going to kill her because he had already told her he was Mm -hmm. so she placed her hand on the trunk latch and as she did he got back to the car So he's climbing back into the driver's seat. He's yelling and just furious that he had not been able to get more money out of the ATM. Yet again, because he just keeps doing the same shit over and over. Right. In his anger, he started rapidly backing out of the parking space, causing Brittany to just kind of bounce around in the trunk. But she now knew what she needed to do. She couldn't climb out while he was in reverse or she was going to get run over by her own car. Yeah. The instant that he started moving forward again, Brittany acted. She pulled the trunk latch, popping open the trunk, put her foot out, trying to step out of the car, but this man was furious and he's peeling out. Mm-hmm. He takes off very quickly, moving much faster than Brittany realized they were going. And as she tried to step out, she fell onto her side and shoulder out on the pavement, dropping a bunch of stuff out of her pockets. But the adrenaline was pumping and she popped right back up and frantically barreled into the gas station. Wow. The owner saw her terror and let her hide behind the counter. There's more to his story, but we'll come back to him. Mm-hmm. He called the police for her and he guarded over her until the police arrived. The gas station security cameras caught her dramatic escape from two different angles, as well as the man while he was standing at the ATM. And Brittany, as she ran inside to get help from the station owner, the owner... Yosef Al-Saba said that the kidnapper had tried several times to get cash out of this machine, but failed. And then he had approached the counter asking for help with the ATM. Yeah, like something's wrong with the ATM. It won't give me money. And the guys, <laughs> dude. I don't know what to tell you. I can't really help you with that. <laughs> Al-Saba said that the man had kept trying to withdraw more money than was in the account. And he had gotten very agitated. The owner had told him to leave and come back to try again later, hoping to calm the man down and get him out of the store. Yeah. Obviously. Get out of here. I don't want him in my place. Can you imagine? I don't know how to tell you this, but you're poor. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. And imagine that you're the guy and you're like, I'm poor? (laughs) What? So he was watching as the man left the store, went outside, got back into the car, and started to drive off. And he saw firsthand as the trunk popped open and Brittany came spilling out onto the pavement on her side. (sighs) Police captured a still frame from the security footage and they issued a photo of the perpetrator who had left the gas station. (laughs) And no one knew whether he even realized that he had lost Brittany. So he peels out of here. We don't know whether he even realized she was gone. Brittany was so shaken up from what she called the scariest thing I've ever had to deal with that with the man still on the loose, she just couldn't make herself return to the apartment where she had been grabbed. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any support system in Birmingham except her roommate. Her car was recovered, but she was so traumatized by her night of terror because they'd been driving around. She'd been in this trunk for a long time. They were together for hours I mean, that's before she leaped out of the car. That's really rough. She didn't want anything to do with that car anymore. Mm -mm. So she was scared to go back to her apartment. She had a car that gave her PTSD to even look at it. The perpetrator had taken her last $100, basically. 
So her best friend, Janice Robinson, created a GoFundMe, which raised over $40,000 in six days, taking all the financial pressure off of her so she can finish nursing school, live somewhere safe, and secure some transportation that won't give her panic attacks. Mm -hmm. No doubt she would give the donations back to never have had to go through something like this, with a madman driving her around, figuring out how he was going to kill her. But it's really uplifting to know that people saw her story and reached out to try to help a stranger Mm -hmm. however they could. Within a week after the kidnapping, 28-year-old Manuel Towns was arrested and charged with kidnapping, robbery, and credit card fraud. He had a 10-year history with the prison system and had been released two months earlier. We see this over and over in our stories. Where they just got out and now they're just going to go pull the same, if not worse, type of crap off. Mm -hmm. His previous crimes had included several other robbery convictions, and his probation had been revoked at least twice before due to probation violations. After the photograph of him from the gas station had been released to the media, the public had started calling with tips, including a critical tip that was called into Crime Stoppers. Once they had his name, Manuel Ali Towns, the police started looking for him and they found him just outside the Birmingham city limits. When his trial went forth in 2018, Manuel Towns, who by now was 29 years old, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole due to his previous criminal history. Mm-hmm. Brittany did go on to graduate from nursing school. She became a nurse. She's been very successful in her field. And for the last few years, she had been doing travel nursing. But Brittany has recently returned to North Carolina as a labor and delivery nurse, which she said was her favorite unit in school. And she's fulfilling all of her dreams. And that is the best possible ending to her story. Go, Brittany. I'm so glad that you were so smart to think of how to get out of there. Because she probably would not have survived that night. He couldn't just let her go after that. And then he would have gone on and done it to somebody else who might not know about the trunk pack, you know? Yeah, that's something for all of us to remember. Mm -hmm. Next time you go out to your car, open the trunk and look under the underside of the lid Mm -hmm. and look for where your latch release is to your trunk. I should know this. I don't have any idea where mine is in my trunk. I know where mine was in my old Saab, but I don't know where it is in my Audi. Well, some it's more obvious than others, but Mm -hmm. I mean, at Honda Civic, I could probably just Google and find it in two seconds. You could probably go out and look at it and find it if you... Yeah, It's just that when you're putting your groceries in there or going to the Home Depot... What would I do if somebody shoved me in here right now? Yeah, you just aren't thinking that way. So that's just a reminder to everyone, please look inside your trunk and see where that is. And not just yours. If you're borrowing your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend's car for the day, nowhere it is i wouldn't ever think to do it normally but yeah it could save it could save someone's life someday Mm -hmm. so that's all i have well that's i'm happy i'm happy that yours ended with somebody getting thrown back in jail let's keep them there this time yeah i mean i don't like people to be in jail i wish everyone would just stop being assholes stop perpetrating crimes against people who didn't do anything to you yeah just stop it everybody just be nice people for fuck's sake it's not that hard well and that's what pisses me off the most these people who have actual violent crimes and stuff like that they just get put on parole and are out within like a couple of years And then the man who sold weed when he was 18 is in jail for 40 years. It's like, what the fuck, guys? Yeah. What the fuck? You want to make a plant illegal, make poison ivy illegal. Let the government come out here and find all the poison ivy in my yard and eradicate it. All right, so I think that's the end of episode 23. We really appreciate that you were here with us again today. Mm -hmm. And go ahead and check out our friends that you heard at the beginning of the episode. You remember that was Evil Pudding. We think that you'll enjoy listening to them. 
Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at True Crime BNB. Or you can send us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. There you go. So we would love to hear from you. And if you could go and rate and or review us, that would be awesome too. We've gotten some really nice reviews and they make our day. So And, and even, a, even a rating would be great because... Yeah, we notice them. We see them. We and do. We check them. Makes us smile every time. So Yes. And on that note, I think we are both ready to call it quits. Yes. <laughs> We're tired. I We're sad. We're a little bit happier after yeah, mom's story. I'm a little bit mad about yours still. It's just, yeah, that stuff just enrages It's me. just one of those things that it sucks to talk about, but it's important to talk about. You know? Right. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye, guys. <coughs> We're doing sound check with removed with moved locations. I was going to say removed appendix. Uh, I don't... <laughs> no, I still have mine. Yeah, me too. I even have my tonsils. I was going to say mine too. I know you do. We, well, I guess like what an announcement. Oh, I lost my tonsils. I never told you. Terrible sporting accident. Took a puck to the throat. <laughs> yeah, it was an old football injury. <laughs> Rock and roll coochie coo. That sounds so dirty. I can't not hear coochie in that. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Most gay people through this. I'm sorry, I went off the rails again. No, it's okay. This whole thing is so infuriating. I get so preachy when we talk about stuff like this. Sorry. I'm glad I got all the eyeliner that was left on my eye off before I did this. That's so awful. I'm sorry. It's. Yeah, I know. Even the cat is Please this, you know what's going to be hard is editing this. We're at 41 minutes. Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I had to restart 20 minutes of that, so that's fine. <laughs> All right. He was watching as the man got back into the trunk. He was watching him out through the glass and got back into the trunk. <laughs> I was going to say, when so, did that happen? <laughs> so, who by now was 29 years old. 29 years old, not 29 years old. Like he was nine years old the first time. <laughs> 20 times nine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm allergic to arsenic. I'm sorry, I can't have that today. Exactly. Exactly. And 